pretend you care about kids, get the food and leave. So, VBS meeting, fellowship hall after this service. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is continuing this theme in Romans. And if you remember correctly, weeks ago, when we started Romans, we talked about how great it would be to actually teach Romans just nonstop. Because there's all these wonderful points, and what happens is we break them up when really it's one continuous thought. The first couple chapters of the book of Romans lays out the case about God, His existence, and how He is the fair and righteous judge. Well, then it brings in the concept of sin and how we need to be judged because of the sin that we've committed. Now, Romans could end it there on a low note, and basically we're all sinners destined for hell. Well, in Romans 4, it tells us about faith and faith in Jesus Christ that brings us salvation. Then ultimately in Romans 5, it brings up the love of God. This beautiful idea of the love of God. And if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to get a copy of that message. Because I tell you this, when you fully understand the love of God, how much God loves you, that impacts everything you do. All of a sudden, it's easy to let go of things and burdens and struggles and bitterness and and, and anger and frustrations because you realize how much God has forgiven you. And we can only really love other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to an extent, to a measurement of how much we love God. Because if we're not really understanding how much God loves us and how much we love God, why do we do what we do? If I'm not impacted passionately by what God has done for me, then what difference does it make if I serve? What difference does it make if I read or pray? What difference does it make if I go out there and spread the gospel? We have to passionately know who God is and His love for us. Now, we could end it at Romans 5. That would have been kind of fun. That's a high note. Let's just talk about love. Romans 6, though, is all about sin. Now, it's not all about sin in the sense of like Romans 3 was, where you walk away feeling I'm a sinner, Romans 6 is now bringing this all together to tell you, listen, God loves you as a sinner, and He's actually given you victory over sin. Romans 6 is the chapter that shows us how we can have victory now over sin and all that we do and say. Because when you leave off in Romans 5, it's really easy just to get this mindset of, God loves me, what difference does it make? Paul starts out right away with that, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if God loves me, what difference does it make? Verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How can we who claim to be Christians continue in sin? Now, you have to understand the biblical definition of continuing in sin. There's a difference between continuing in sin and committing a sin. The Bible makes it clear that you and I are going to commit sins. We're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to say things we're going to shouldn't, we're going to see things we shouldn't, we commit sin. But what 1 John talks about and what Romans 6 is talking about is continuing in. It literally means in the Greek, setting a pattern of sin. I've been saved 22 years and there's things that I struggle with now that I struggled with 22 years ago. I still sin, but I hope through Jesus Christ I'm not continuing in sin. I'm not committing a pattern of sin. So the question is, do we live in sin? Do we continue in it? Or do we have moments of stumbling and committing? Paul is saying right here, as a born-again believer, you can't continue in it. Because Christ has so changed you. See, jump ahead to verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. I can't continue in sin because I've died to it. I heard a pastor say one time, dead men don't sin. I think that's great. So now the question comes up of, how do I become a dead man? In Christ, but yet still live in this world. 
Because I want to be that man that's not continuing in sin. So that's what Romans 6 is about. How do I die to this concept of sin and still live for Christ? Verse 3. Do you not know that as many as us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's the goal. The goal is getting to verse 6, this idea that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, that's what my new King James says. I, I printed off some different translations. King James says it good. The body of sin might be destroyed. New Living Translation says that the body of sin may lose its power in our lives. Those are interesting words. The concept of sin in your life is supposed to be destroyed. It's supposed to lose its power. What does that look like? That phrase there, that the body of sin might be done away with, verse 6, literally means this, that sin has become idle and active, and here's my favorite, unemployed. Sin has become idle, active, and unemployed in your life. Still there. It's just unemployed. One pastor said this, sin is paralyzed, but its mouth still speaks. Isn't that true? I mean, I know I'm dead to sin. I mean, I know through Christ I can defeat it. It's idle. It's inactive. It's unemployed. But it's still there. And it still screams at me. See, I wish we could just keep going in Romans. Because in Romans 7, this is where Paul has that great statement. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't. And he's talking about how sin is dead. But it still yells at him. And haven't you ever felt that as a believer? You're in the middle of doing something, and I don't want to do this. I don't. And I'm just sitting here loving Jesus. And where does this thought come from? I'm just sitting, driving to and from work. Where does this fear, this worry, this anxiety, this pit in my stomach just come from like that? I'm looking at my wife thinking she's lovely, and I love her. Two seconds later, how could she do that? Sin is yelling at me. But that's all it can do. It's idle, it's inactive, it's unemployed, but it's still there. And so what really Paul is trying to tell us is, do you understand what it means to be dead to sin? So he gives the example here of Jesus in verses 3, 4, and 5, the idea of baptism. Now, baptism is an interesting word, because every time we think of baptism, we automatically think of water. And that is obviously one aspect of baptism. We're having a baptism service today, and we'll talk about that in a second. But baptized means to also identify with, to be joined with. So there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's also the baptism in Christ's death. So what Paul is talking about here is that we have been united in death with Christ. So when Christ died on the cross for our sins, by us uniting with him, we have died also to sin. Just like Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we have been baptized into that. We have died with him as well. So do we really believe that? And water baptism then is a picture of that same identity. See, when somebody gets water baptized, it's really a picture of everything that Jesus did. When you walk into that water, that water represents newness of life. That water represents being washed in Christ. And then when you go into the water, we say we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That represents going to the grave. It represents dying. And then when you come out of the water, it represents coming out to a newness of life. 
So, baptism is identifying with Christ. Just like some of you come in and you're wearing a jersey of a certain sports team. You are identifying with that team. You are showing your support for them. Baptism is publicly showing your support. You're publicly choosing to follow Jesus Christ. And I choose to be baptized because it's symbolic of everything that we did. Now, I mentioned to this earlier during announcements, pray for those people getting baptized. My goodness. Every time we do a baptism service, one of the teaching points I do is say that now that you publicly want to proclaim Christ, you're putting a huge bullseye on your back. And as you put that huge bullseye on the back, the enemy is going to hit you. had a guy that got baptized not too long ago, and he came up to me afterwards. He goes, I heard you say it, I heard you teach it, and I believed what you said. I never thought it would be like that. I'm not trying to deter you from getting baptized. But what I'm just trying to tell you is this. You're publicly saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's a huge statement in this world we live in. Huge statement. And that's why baptism is such a big deal in your walk with Christ. It's your public way of saying, I identify with Christ. And just like we learned here in red, it is symbolic of everything Christ did on the cross. Death and then resurrection and newness and walking in life. Jump ahead now, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. See, this is the flip side of the coin. See, what you had in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 is you need to die to sin, just like Jesus died. But now, what we have in verses 8, 9, and 10, we also get the other side, life. Just as Jesus died, we died to sin. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, we now have life because we are now living in Christ. See, in just a couple weeks when we get to Easter, we really see this. We'll get together on Excellent Wednesday. We'll do communion and we'll talk about Christ's death on the cross. And that will be those first few verses, dying with Jesus. And then we'll get together Sunday, the tomb is empty, and we'll be talking about Jesus rising from the dead. And there'll be joy. See, and this is both sides of the coin. But if you want that other side of life, you got to understand death. And what happens sometimes as believers is we want to walk in joy. I want to walk in the joy of the Spirit, and I want to be alive in Christ and be exciting. I don't want to die to sin, though. You can't have it both ways. You have to be able to stop and say, I have to die to therefore also live. And this is what Paul is trying to tell you. So then he sums it up in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word there, reckon, is actually kind of interesting. Up here, we don't hear it a whole awful lot. If you're from a few states down south, you will hear the word reckon a whole awful lot more. Now, what's it mean to reckon something? Well, when you hear somebody speak about reckon, they say, I reckon we can do that. That word literally means, I've calculated, I've thought it out, I've planned it out, and I think we can do this. If somebody says, I reckon we have enough, that means that they've kind of thought it through, and I have enough of that item. It actually is an accounting term, and reckon actually means this idea of to count, to calculate. So what Paul is telling you in verse 11, he goes, I want you to think about everything I said in the first 10 verses. Jesus' death can be your death to sin. Jesus' resurrection can be your resurrection to life. Just as Jesus died to sin, you can die to sin. Just as Jesus rose to life, you can rise to life. You can be identified with Christ through baptism. Then he stops in verse 11 and says, do you reckon this? It's like from Alabama, do you reckon this? He says, do you believe it? He He goes, think about it. What he's really saying here in the original language is, think about everything I say, calculate it, run it through your mind. Do you agree? Because here's the truth. 
If you don't agree or don't fully want to understand verse 11, verse 12 on, it doesn't matter. Because what happens now, verse 12 on, he gives you practical steps on how to not live in sin. But until you fully understand Jesus dying so you can die to sin and Jesus living so you can live in life, this rest of the stuff means nothing. See, if you still have this mindset that you're going to walk in sin the rest of your life and you'll never be able to defeat it, then what matters after verse 12? You're died to sin. If you think that your life will never have joy, never have purpose, and it's just this whole hum begrudging rest of my life, and you don't really get verses 8, 9, 10 about the joy that Jesus brings, Paul's saying here, there's no reason to go on. Calculate this. Run the numbers. Think about what I said. And then he said, now let's talk about it. So I hope you get that. Because now Paul says, this is how we practically do it. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. That's pretty simple. You don't want to sin? Don't do it. That word reign means to have a kingdom over. How often have you allowed sin to set up a kingdom in your life? And you kind of like its rule. See, that's what Paul is saying. If you don't want to, verse 12, don't let sin reign in your life. Don't let sin be the focus of everything you do. And what is that sin? For every person, it's different. If the only thing you think about is going out and getting drunk and high, well, then that's what you're letting reign in your life. If the only thing you're thinking about is going home and looking at things you shouldn't online, then that's going to let you reign in your life. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's fear. I have come to this conclusion. I think some people like to walk in worry and fear. It's almost like they have a power by, be, by choosing what they worry about. Some people walk in gossip. Some people walk in anger. Some people choose to be bitterness. They, they choose to let that sin reign in their life. And so what Paul is saying here is the first point to this is verse 12. Who's the king of your life? Are you letting sin reign in your life? If so, how do you fix that? Verse 13. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. That word there, do not not present your members as instruments of righteousness, really interesting words. Those words literally mean either tools or weapons. Tools or weapons. So what Paul is saying here is, Who do you choose to present yourself to? Are you a tool or weapon of sin? Or are you a tool of weapon or weapon for the Lord? There's so many different things you can do. That hammer can be a tool to help you build. That hammer can also be a tool that destroys. Weapons can be tools of protection or tools of destruction. Paul is saying, which one are you going to be? And he guess what he says in verses 13 and 14? He says, you get to choose. Now, at this point, there's usually somebody who thinks that they don't have a choice. And I get the texts, I get the emails, I get the phone calls, I hear it in counseling. I can't help myself. I immediately stop at that point and say, yes, you can. The Holy Spirit says he's given you self-control. You cannot blame your sin on anybody else. I hear things like, well, if she wouldn't act this way, I wouldn't do this. She forces me. No. Your sin, that's a choice. You chose to be an instrument of sin. Everything in life is a split-second decision. When somebody says something you don't like, you have a split-second decision. Do I respond in the flesh or do I respond in the spirit? 
When something happens in life and you feel fear, worry, and anxiety come up, split-second decision. Do you respond in faith or do you respond in fear? You are a tool or a weapon, either of destruction of the enemy or of righteousness for the Lord. You have to choose. Which one do you want to be? Now, I look at these passages. I don't want to be used by the Lord sometimes. Sometimes it would be just easier. I've sometimes thought about this thinking, Lord, why? Why do you use us? I, I mean, we, we create more of a mess than what we help. I've shared this example with you many times before. If I have a project at home and I need to go do the project and my boys see me grab my tool bag, Dad, what are you doing? Can we help? Please, no. Please, no. It's going to take twice as long. It's going to be twice as difficult. Sometimes I try to sneak out so they don't have to help. They're not helpful. I'm not helpful to the body of Christ. I'm not. God could do a much better job. He could just say, James, you know what? Every Sunday at 10, I'll just have an angel pop down for an hour and a half. They'll present the gospel pretty clearly. They'll take care of it. Hey, James, don't, don't try to proclaim the gospel. Just let the Holy Spirit do all the talking. Don't, don't say anything. See, here's this thing, though, with my boys. It's not that they want to help. They just want to be with Dad. And I've come to the conclusion, if I just love the Lord, I just want to be with my father. So, Lord, I know I'm not helpful. I'm the two-year-old with a hammer. I am really dangerous. Really dangerous. But, Lord, I just want to be around my father. And my boys just want to be around their dad. And so by them helping, I hope I'm training up another generation. I'm spending quality time with them. I hope that there is this time of fellowship and there's time of creating memories. Same thing with me serving God. God's just happy I'm with them. It's really not that I'm doing anything. I'm just spending time with my father. See, we're nothing. We're absolutely nothing. I was really struggling this week with this concept of, of who we are in the Lord and just beating me up in this idea of we're nothing. But it wasn't a good we're nothing. To me, it was a bad we're nothing. Like, Lord, I'm nothing. Just get me out of the way. Someone shared a verse with me that really hit me, and it was out of Romans 5.2. And in the one translation, it says, undeserved privilege. I thought... That sums up ministry. Undeserved privilege. I am privileged to serve the body of Christ, and I don't deserve this. I am privileged with my wife and kids, and I don't deserve them. I am privileged to know Jesus, and I don't deserve it. And when I fully understood undeserved privilege, it freed me. God is not using me because I bring something to the table. God is not using me because I'm eloquent or smart or what have you. I am undeserving of all of this. And it's just by the grace of God that we even get to be here. The next part of that verse says that now we can be confident and joyful. Once you realize how undeserving you are, and it's all the Lord, now you walk in confidence because it's not you. And now you walk in joy because it's not you. I'm just an instrument. I'm just a tool or a weapon that just says, Lord, I am available. Use me when you want to use me on however way you want to use me. And if I see another tool or weapon being used more, hey, amen. If I see another tool or weapon being used less, that's between them and the Lord. I just need to be used when God calls me and be available. Be available. When I go grab my hammer out of the toolbox, my hammer doesn't say, please, no. My hammer is just available. And I just want to be available to the Lord. So, how do you not let sin reign in your mortal body? First off, you choose by being saying, I want to be used by the Lord. How simple is that? Lord, I want to be used 
by you. So now the concept just kind of keeps growing here a little bit. It's a choice that we make. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Sin is not my master. Some of your translations say sin is the master. Some of you have chosen to rule, excuse me, some of you have chosen to live under the rule of sin. You have made sin your king. You have a choice on which king you want to serve, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you will present yourself slaves to obey? You're that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, that you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So with this choice I have, I now choose whom I'm going to obey. Who is my king? Who will reign over me? Sin or the Lord? Have you ever been in a spot where you are a slave to sin? It is an awful feeling. Things are coming out of your mouth that you don't want to come out of your mouth, but you're just like a slave to it. There are things you're doing and you don't want to do, but you're like you're a slave to it. I I mean, I've counseled people and talked to people. It's like, you you don't understand. I I just had to have that drink. I just had to go do that. I had to go click on that webpage, and I know I shouldn't have. I just had to. I had to just raise my voice because of what was going on, and we're a slave to it. And that goes back to what Paul said, which we'll get into next week. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. And the things I want to do, I'm not doing. How do we break this cycle of being a slave to it? Well, the key word is verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. It always comes back to the heart, doesn't it? Lord, I want to read more. Be more in prayer. Is that my tongue saying or that, or is that my heart? Because if it's my heart, I'll do it. Lord, I want to love people like you love them. Now, if that's just me saying it, I'll keep failing. But if it's my heart, I'll do it. What does Jesus change when we get saved? Our heart. Everything that happens in our life is an inward to the outward. What happens in Christianity in America today, we make it outward to inward. It does not work to go outward to inward. It does not. You know what would help that person if they were in church more? No, their heart. If their heart's right, they'll want to be in church more. You know what would help that person if they read more and pray more? Well, that'd be good, but if their heart was right, they would want it. How often do we minister outward to inward? Now, we feel better about ourselves. I've noticed most ministries are outward to inward, and they feel good about themselves. What did we do? We met that need. We supplied that need. I took care of that. I don't know how many times early on as being a pastor, most of my ministry was outward, inward. I would do anything for anybody at any time. I felt good that I did something, but there was no fruit. But I was sure busy. Now I've realized it's inward, outward. You want your marriage to be different. You want your life to be different. You want your sin choices to be different. If your heart's where it's supposed to be in the Lord, inward to outward will make a difference. Look at how Jesus ministered to people. Jesus ministered inward to outward. They'd come to him with a problem, and he would always want to address the sin issue. 
He would always want to address the heart. Nicodemus comes to him, John 3. Master, we know you're a great teacher. We know you're wonderful. We know you're beautiful. You're the most amazing thing ever. Jesus looks right at him and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Let's just get right to the heart issue, Nicodemus. You've got to be saved. That's what matters more than anything. Feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000. First mega church in the Bible, Jesus. If he had 5,000 men, add in women and kids, he had a congregation that would rival most any today. He could have kept that congregation going. What did he do? He just came right out to him and said, Hey, you're following me to get free meals. Stops right now. I'm the bread of life. You have to want me, not the food. Bible says what? And many disciples left him. Because Jesus wasn't caring about numbers. He wasn't caring about the outward. He was caring about what? Are your hearts following me? Or do you want the free hamburger? So, he got to the heart. Paul says right here, how is your heart? When your heart is right with the Lord, you will seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's what matters. It's getting the heart where it's supposed to be. I don't have to be a slave to sin. It's a choice that I make. And when my heart says, Lord, I want what you want, sin still tempts me, but it's idle and active and unemployed. It may yell at me, but I have a choice to be dead to that or not. What happens, though, when we go down that path of sin, verse 21? What fruit did you have then in those things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. We mentioned this on a couple Wednesday nights ago. This idea of, I've never heard anybody say, when I'm completely wasted, I make the best decisions I've ever had. No, it usually leads to shame, guilt. I've never had anybody say, you know what, James? When I really quit praying, quit reading, quit studying, quit being in fellowship, quit serving, that's when my mind became really clear and I knew what I was supposed to do. No. Those things bring shame. In fact, verse 21, it brings death may not bring physical death, but it brings death in relationships. It brings spiritual death. I mean, have you ever seen somebody walking, and they're alive. I mean, they're alive. They're just spiritually dead. Why? Because they're choosing to go down the path of presenting themselves as a slave to sin. They're letting sin rule and reign. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a choice. Now, if you're thinking, it sounds too easy. You don't want to sin, you just choose not to. You're getting the second part of the lesson without fully understanding the first part of the lesson. Go back to verse 11. Paul's telling you, you have to grasp this concept first. Jesus died... I can die to sin. Jesus lived, I can live. Now that I understand that, I now make choices on how I live my life. Here's the problem with Christianity today. Somebody is sinning, we just go to them and say, stop. That has never worked. It may work for a season, but if you really want to make long-term changes, it's the heart. It's the heart that has to be one with Christ. And if the heart isn't one with Christ... What difference does it make? So how do you get your heart where it's supposed to be with Christ? This is our last point. Can you go to John 15, please? John 15. What's it look like when our heart is right with Christ? There's a lot of people 
that with their mouth say they want to go deeper in the Lord, but in their actions, they don't. When the heart is where it's supposed to be, the actions will follow. How do we get our heart where it's supposed to be? We abide in Christ. Some of your translations say we remain. Let's talk about it. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch to me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. Just hear that one more time. For without me, you can do nothing. How many of us have lived decades of our lives without the Lord thinking we can do something? Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. You want to know how we get to that point of walking and freedom, being dead to sin, and being fruitful and our heart being right, you abide in Christ, you remain in Him. How simple is this? Jesus is saying, just stay close to me. My boys will be safe if they stay in the backyard. My goats, who I have a love-hate relationship with, will be safe if they stay in the fence. You will be safe if you stay at the feet of Jesus. When you choose to get away from the feet of Jesus and you choose to not abide in Him and choose to not remain in Him, you will not be where the Lord wants you to be. You will not be safe. Do you have someone in your life right now that you would love to see them go deeper in Christ? Are they abiding at the feet of Jesus? Are they remaining at the feet of Jesus? If they're not, that's the first prayer. Lord, help them to stay just at the feet of Christ, to stay as close as they can to Jesus. There's this great passage of Peter where it says that Peter, when Jesus was arrested, Peter followed Jesus. But do you remember the words? Followed him at a distance. How many Christians live their life that way? There's Jesus. I got my eye on him. I mean, I can see him. He's a good 150 yards away. But I can still see him. So I must be okay. If you really, really want to be passionate about the things of the Lord, and you really want to see a difference in your life and where you work, you want purpose, you want joy, abide in Christ. Remain in Christ. Stay close to Christ. The farther you get away from Him, I tell you, your joy level, your spiritual goodness, everything will do will just start to fall away. James said this, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. So, a couple quick points on this. What's it mean, though, as we abide in Him, that he says that he'll come and he'll prune. Verse 2, that sounds dangerous. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That word prune obviously means to prune. It means to cut. The Lord sometimes needs to cut things out of our lives. But it's an interesting word for prune because it means to cut. But the majority of the time it's used in the Bible does not mean to cut. It means to actually clean. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that word is actually translated not prune, but washed. You know what that shows me? Jesus wants to wash, to cleanse those areas in my life that are weak, that are not good. See, it's interesting where it says right here that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That literally means to lift up. 
Think of vines, grapevines. If they're laying on the ground, not really effective. What does the Lord do? He lifts us up. We get those grapevines off the ground so they produce more fruit. If I'm laying on the ground, the dirt of the world, and sin, God says, I want to lift you up. I want to clean you up. That's what he wants to do. And how does this happen? By abiding in him, by remaining in him, by staying at the feet of Christ. When we get away from the feet of Christ, everything falls apart. People, just hear me one more time on that. When you get away from Christ, everything falls apart. That's why we abide in him. That's why we remain in him. Because what a branch does on its own is nothing. A branch can't do anything on its own. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What good does one branch do on its own? Imagine I told you about the most amazing apple tree you've ever seen. The biggest apples, the brightest apples, the best tasting apples. And you said, wow, that's really great. I wish I had a tree like that. Hey, I'll bring you in a branch next week. What good is that going to do? The branch needs to be connected to the roots. If you are a branch off of Christ and you're trying to do it on your own, what do you think is going to happen? A grapevine is good for one thing. And what's that? Producing grapes. Have you ever walked into someone's house and said, have you seen my table? Solid grapevine. No. Made that house out of grapevine. No. Grapevine is not known as a strong wood. It's soft. It's bendable. Nothing. Grapevines produce grapes. You are a branch. You're not called to be on your own. You're not called to be tough on your own. You're called to be connected to Jesus and bear fruit for Him and to glorify God. How often do we try to do things on our own? What's it look like practically to abide in the Lord? I just want to share with you this and then we're done. I was reading a devotional and it's by a pastor by the name of Jack Abelan. Love that guy. And he just said this about abiding. I just want you to listen to this. The word abide is translated remain, dwell, continue, tarry, or endure. In the Bible, when it's used in reference to a place, it means don't depart. When it's used in reference to time, it means continue without end or without interruption. So here's your part. Stay close to Jesus in fellowship. Be diligent with him in communion. Let him make himself at home in your life. Make your decisions guided by his word. Let his spirit be your strength. The result will be that your life will be fruitful because just like separating a branch from the vine brings death to the branch, so trying to separate yourself from Jesus and still serve him brings fruitlessness. Yet abiding is the secret to fruit bearing. It isn't a very difficult comparison to understand. We can bear fruit as branches only when we abide in the vine because a branch on its own is useless, fruitless, and lifeless. Now just think about this for a second. Marv, you can come forward here if you want. Just think about this. You are a branch off of Christ. We're called to abide and remain in Him. If there is a distance between you and your root system, how do you think it's going to work? If you're not spending time at the feet of Jesus, not because you have to, but because you want to, do you really think there's going to be joy and peace? It all comes down to being at the feet of Christ. If you have a loved one that you would love to see go deeper in the Lord, I'm willing to bet that they don't spend much time at the feet of Jesus abiding in Him. You can do everything you can from the outward, 
But change does not go outward, inward. It goes inward, outward. Their heart, just like we read in Romans 6, their heart has to desire the things of God. And when they desire the things of God, they will choose to abide and remain where they're called to be. As you go out this week to minister, because we are all ministers called to spread the gospel, just take a look at the people you minister to. Are you trying to do outward change to inward heart change? doesn't work. Pray for their hearts. Encourage their hearts to go deeper in Jesus. Encourage them to get into the Word. Counseling is so simple. Point them to Jesus. Point them to God's Word. I hope they want it, and I hope they take advantage of it. So as we get ready to close, don't forget uh, VBS meeting in the back, Fellowship Hall. Also, check out the...